0: Alright, welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. I am your host, David Rosen, and I don't normally say that, but hi everybody, I'm David Rosen. I am really excited about this one. As people who have listened to the show for a while know... This movie we're talking about today, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, from writer-director Charlie Kaufman, has been at the top of my most-awaited list for a couple of years now as I tracked its development, and I'm finally getting to talk about the movie in detail. We've got returning to the show after he joined me for the episode on Charlie Kaufman's novel Ant Kind, we've got Chris Cranach joining me to talk about this movie, and I think we have a great conversation coming up for you guys lots of puzzle pieces lots of things to talk about and uh, we're going to get into that in a second but i do want to remind you as always make sure you're subscribed to piecing it together wherever it is you listen to podcasts we're on of course apple Podcasts, spotify Pocket tune in wherever it is you're listening to it right now you could subscribe right there. And you could also follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. And, uh, you know, all the other stuff that goes along with being a podcast. Do, do all those things. Share, like, review. Uh, all, all those things we appreciate it and we love the feedback we've been getting lately and all the support we've been getting it's just been awesome and thank you everybody that's about that's been out there listening and uh letting us know how much you like the show so with that said uh let's get into this conversation because we have a lot to talk about with i'm thinking of ending things All right, so back on the show with us today, we've got Chris Cranock. How you doing, Chris? I'm very well, thanks. How are you doing? I am great. I am I'm very happy that this movie that we're about to talk about finally is out it's something i've been waiting for for a long time and i'm very excited to finally talk about it on the podcast and uh of course you know i wanted to have you back after we talked about charlie kaufman's aunt kind to talk about i'm thinking of ending things where are you in the the process of processing uh a new charlie kaufman piece of uh of art uh
1: so i'm i think i'm processed Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think I've, I think I've processed. I've, I've watched it um, twice now, mm-hmm. and I liked the film a lot. I mean, just like a super basic review is that I liked it and I had a really, I really enjoyed it. And but it, mm-hmm. it was a unique experience for me, and so we can talk about that a little bit more as we go. But I think it was one of the most unique Kaufman experiences, and not for the reason I expected. So okay. I'm kind of processing not the content itself. Uh, I feel like I have a fairly good handle on it, uh, of course. But that's you know, it's you'll there's it's very compartmentalized. So we can, I'll be able to you know see different things about it as time goes on. But for the most Mm -hmm. part, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on it. It's more about like my reaction to it that I'm kind of processing, and like what I think about it as a as a congealed piece. That's kind of what I'm processing. How about you? Okay.
0: Yeah. No. That that makes sense. I I think when the credits first rolled, uh, it was. It was one thing and then it continued to be things as I continued to think about it. And and I feel like that is the case with a movie like this or, you know, a Charlie Kaufman project in general. You're always going to kind of be in that kind of a place after you finish watching it the first time and you know while there's certain things that reveal themselves while you're watching some of it doesn't come until after some of it doesn't come until that second viewing and I, certainly Synecdoche New York I felt the same way and Amalisa I felt the same way uh, not so much Eternal Sunshine I don't think uh, but you know we'll end up talking about a lot of his projects along the way in this conversation just like we did with Ant Kind I'm right. sure uh but you know that that's a that's a very charlie kaufman thing and his you know the 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 people that are that are like him his contemporaries but uh yeah i i i think i am i'm at a place with this movie which i know a lot of people i i know some people who like kind of checked out in the middle and just it was just too much for them uh i know a lot of people who loved it uh and kind of some people would call this a love it or hate it kind of movie and nothing in between. But I don't think that's kind of the reaction I'm seeing. I'm I'm kind of seeing all across the board as far as uh, what people are thinking of this one. But, you know, with that said, I think we should just jump into some puzzle pieces. I know you got a bunch. I got a bunch here. So what do you got for your first one?
1: All right. Well, let me just say one quick thing before I say my first one. I think what's really unique about this Charlie Kaufman film is that it was released to the Netflix audience. Oh, absolutely. And so you have, like, the net, the Netflix riffraff are like, what is this? You know, to where mm-hmm. I had to go and, like, I had, you know, three and a half minutes to catch Anomalisa in a theater. I had to, like, pounce right. on an usher to get into yeah. the room before the movie was out of theater. Yeah. So, I didn't know
0: you yet at that time, but I, I probably fought my way past you just to get in the theater first. Right. So, right.
1: so yeah, yeah, real quick, just the, I mean, the fact that we're getting this, like, totally unique Reaction experience is because it was dumped on a streaming platform that everyone in the world in the world has, and everyone's like, "What is this?" And it's like, "What? Do you, this is nothing. This is Kaufman White. I'm, this is." Let's I'm let's there. be fair.
0: Let's be fair, though, for the listeners. Uh, you use the word "dumped," and I would use that word too a lot of the times. But this movie today probably. Really wouldn't get financed. Uh, only and and I I say that people use that argument with Netflix all the time, and I always rail against them. I'm like, no, that's that's bullshit. These kind of movies do get financed all the time. You just need to know where to look for them. But a Charlie Kaufman movie doesn't get financed.
1: Is yeah, what I you mean know, by it's that. A really hard time, which is weird. Yeah. But we'll yeah. okay, we'll get that's another rabbit hole we can explore more. Uh, my sure. puzzle piece. I'm gonna start with a heady one. You know me. You know me. I don't have those blue collar pieces. (laughs) Excuse me. I'm scaling. I'm gonna start with Ingmar Bergman's Through a Glass Darkly. Okay. Uh, For a very superficial reason, and then a little bit more of a uh, layered reason. The first one is is the the use of wallpaper. So Mm. the very opening shots of uh, I think I'm thinking of ending things is this kind of montage of the uniquely. Uh, patterned wallpaper uh, that is in this house that take, you know, in the center of the film, we, we go to this house. Uh, and the wallpaper in Through a Glass Darkly plays a very specific p- part and, a, and has a very thematic purpose. Uh, and the film in at large, kind of Through a Glass Darkly is about madness in a lot of ways. That's uh, about many mm-hmm. other things. It's a very layered tapestry, but essentially the main character is kind of nutty. And uh, Mm -hmm. as we all know, with piecing it together, there's going to be a lot of spoilers here. This is a movie that you should definitely have seen before listening because it's a spoiler, you know, like type movie. You want to, you know, there's a lot of mystery to it. But essentially, the main character is crazy. And Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, Kaufman, who is such a dialogue heavy filmmaker, was looking for visual ways to communicate some of the more subtextual things about the Mm -hmm. characters. And I think he did that by taking a page out of the Bergman playbook and made this very intricate, beautiful wallpaper pattern that kind of is the backdrop. And that's iconically used in Through a Glass Darkly. Right, right. And, you
0: know, I think I've seen some interviews with him, you know, over the past couple of weeks about this and, uh, like, I know a lot of that, like the mental state of the character and, you know, twists and things like that were things that were it, spelled out in the Ian Reid novel, which uh, we should we should mention, uh, this was originally a book and it is adapted. It's, there's, from what I understand, quite a few changes from the book, but uh, the biggest of all is not making it about those kind of twists and things and and kind of instead weaving them in and making it things that you just kind of pick up on along the way
1: yeah i mean i, I mean this is this is just a bl- a blanket feeling that i have about the film and and we can kind of again go back and, and unpack it more as we go but like for me i felt like this was actually one of charlie's weaker outings as a writer but one of okay. his strongest outings as a director Mm. I think the movie is somewhat simplistic, which I know is like going against the grain with a lot of people's view of the film. But I mean, sure. coming from Synecdoche, New York, this is child's play. I mean, you know, this is, this is not as, you know, layered as that film. And it didn't really give it. I didn't really have the mental gymnastics that I had with some of the other films. And that's not necessarily a negative thing. You know, I, I like mm. it. I, you know, it's, it's just different, but but what I really thought he was in command of in this outing was the, the, the atmosphere, the vibe. Sure. And I feel like he was really strong as a director for this particular piece to where his writing has always been center stage. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. interestingly enough, kind of coming back to like the visual of it and embedding these things more subliminally into the film, you know, you know um, Kaufman isn't always known for his subtlety. And I think this is right. by far his one of his most subtle films, which right. is dangerously maybe saying it might be one of his simpler films, but by far, I mean the atmosphere was the strongest part. I mean, I think it was very, um, it absorbed me a lot in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I think that was his strength as a director. So that was really exciting to see.
0: Yeah, I, I think that is exciting, and and you know, for someone who hasn't been given a lot of chances to direct, uh, it's it's great to see you know, him get a chance to display what, you know, fans of his knew he has, but it's like, he just doesn't get those opportunities. And so hopefully, you know, he's got a lot of projects, as he always does, he has a lot of projects in in development. And hopefully, we continue to see some of this stuff from him, whether it's Netflix, or, you know, hopefully going back into theaters.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited about what the future holds. The biggest, my first reaction was that I was excited that he was doing an adaptation in a more traditional way. I mean, obviously, he right. did an adaptation, but he made mm-hmm. that basically an original film. Uh, you know, it's a, essentially, it's hard to view that as a, as a, as a traditional adaptation. So to sure. have him use a source material uh, and be relatively faithful, I mean, as faithful as, as the average film director, you know, interpreting somebody else's work. That was like new territory for him, I thought. And I like when artists go to new places and try different things. So, mm-hmm. my, I mean, the very thing that I'm criticizing is also one of the greatest strengths of the film. It's just one of those things. It's not necessarily a good or bad thing. It's just he went somewhere, he took a risk, and some parts succeeded and some parts didn't work quite as well. But it's, I'm just excited he's evolving.
0: Yeah, it's in some strange ways because for for how weird a movie it is, it's also kind of
1: his more accessible
0: movie. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's a lot of the
1: others. Without a doubt. I mean, from Synecdoche, I think he kind of peaked in terms mm-hmm. of like, we're going to really put, make it hard on the audience because Anomalisa <laughs> was fairly straightforward. I mean, these are, mm-hmm. I and mean, there's elements of surrealism and that's going to be part of my next puzzle piece, but I'll let you go first, of course. But, but mm-hmm. essentially, I mean, this was one of the most straightforward, surreal films that he's done. And, uh, and yeah, he kind of left some of that kind of heady, cerebral stuff on the side. And it's much more of an emotional experience, as was *Anomalisa*. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there's all kinds very of like sure. references to like psych, uh, psychiatric disorders in *Anomalisa*, but for the most part, it's an emotional film. Sure. And uh, so yeah, it was, it's interesting. I think he's actually becoming a little bit more refined in a way, mm-hmm. and maybe he's just kind of like wet my appetite for these very heady, cerebral. Like, and I've been thinking about Synecdoche in New York for like 10 years. You know what I mean? Right. right. It's one of the great achievements of modern cinema. And like, it's like, it's like Finnegan's wake of movies. So then you go and have a movie like this, which is fairly straightforward. And it kind of leaves something to desire, you know, but, Mm -hmm. but like I said, not to repeat myself too much, but it's just such a great example of him as a director. So it's cool. So it's, I'm really, I've really enjoyed it, but what's your puzzle piece?
0: So, yeah, I'll go on to my first one. And this one. Kind of speaks a little bit to that whole, you know, releasing it to the Netflix masses, and uh, you know what they're going to get from it, and and where where their confusions are going to come from. And I thought of the Coen Brothers' No Country for Old Men, mm. which is uh, a, a little bit out there as far as um, you know the movie itself and and the the actual story being told is not very similar. But the thing that that to me uh made me think of this comparison is the the whole misdirection of you know who this story is about and Ooh, what the yeah. character is and that's one thing that I have gotten for for years I, i've I've had you know friends who are just kind of just casual movie watchers who have you know said what was that no country for old men about you know and they, <laughs> they ask me of all people I don't know <laughs> but but the whole thing of like not realizing that oh this this movie is kind of it starts off, you're thinking it's about one thing and it's about this other character altogether. And uh, and then especially with the title, which I think... You know, when it was first announced, his new movie is called I'm Thinking of Ending Things. I immediately thought it's about suicide. Then the trailer comes out and it's like, oh, it's actually about ending a relationship. Mm -hmm. And then I watched the movie and we're back to that, you know, that initial gut reaction from the title. So it's like a a whole lot of misdirection uh, that kind of plays with your perception of what the movie is going to be and of how you should watch the movie and what you should be paying attention to.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's actually a great puzzle piece. I hadn't thought of it, but I think it really it it is exactly kind of what you're describing—the misdirection element. And it's funny when I when people ask me about No Country for Old Men, I say, just say the title out loud very slowly, right? <laughs> yeah, and, the, and the answer the answer is in there, that's, uh, right. you know, and that's that some people I know. Uh, there's a filmmaker friend of mine that like hates No Country for Old Men, and it's because it's not because he doesn't get it he he gets it, but he hates it mm-hmm. anyway because he just demands that our hero is given justice. Right, yeah,
0: which un- is understandable because it's a great thriller as a yeah. straightforward thing, but then
1: that's not really what this thing is going to be. About, all, yeah, by a metaphor, but not everyone, yeah. those, those that doesn't sit right with everybody. So right. I think you're right on, I think he hit it right on the nose about the comparison of No Country, but also too, I feel like the Coens are the most mainstream surrealists that we currently have. Right, I mean, I feel right. like Charlie Kaufman pushes the envelope to a place where maybe some of the average moviegoer doesn't want to follow, which is why he has a hard time getting financed, and the Coens are winning Oscars. I mean, mm-hmm. the Coens are extremely surreal. They just present it in such a way that's either more accessible or funnier, or maybe a little bit more homespun. We uh, we identify with these characters. They're not, they're typically not neurotic intellectuals. You know, the thing about Coens is they make movies about idiots for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so right. we kind of like we like that. That's more comforting to us. But the approaches are very similar. I mean, sure. I can definitely see there being a lineage between, or at least a, a camaraderie between those two uh, schools of filmmaking. And so, yeah, there's something about Kaufman that I think frightens people. And there's and there's some type of delivery that the Coens uh, that they've mastered that allows the general audience to to accept it more anyway. But yeah, it's, it's, inter- but it's definitely a great comparison. And, they've, and you know, they've, they've ushered in mainstream surrealism. So I can see Coffin oh, yeah. being, uh, being in debt to them. For sure. So what do you got for your next piece? Well, speaking of surrealism, I'm going to have to go with the great surrealist uh, Louise Bonwell, the, 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 maybe, the, maybe the greatest of all surrealist film directors, uh, a movie in particular called The Exterminating Angel. Now, the exterminating angel is much more a comment on the bourgeois society, which was often the target of Bunuel's aim of his, you know, of his satire. He was always kind of mocking the the bourgeois or the the more uh, higher status quo. And so I don't feel like I'm Thinking of Ending Things has that kind of large sweep, but I think that – there's a lot. In, it shares a lot in common in terms of its approach. So with the mm. exterminating with the exterminating angel, it's about people that go to a dinner party, and then they can't leave. They they can't physically leave the room, and it's never mm. explicitly explained why or what's stopping them exactly. Uh, the this is where the metaphor takes over, right? The, we don't we don't have anything anchoring us to the narrative. There's nothing logical, so, but it's just a metaphor to where I think that. Kaufman's a little bit more sly uh, in this, and he gives us the illusion of reality a little bit longer. There's like weird things happening, but I don't think, I don't think we, you know, we are thinking that this is a larger metaphor for something else as we're watching it. But Mm -hmm. I definitely think there's a lineage between the the surrealist works of Bunuel and Kaufman, and I also think that it's the um, kind of claustrophobic quality of the two movies. I think that also have have in common. Exterminating Angels very claustrophobic. Because of the dinner party and all these people crammed into a room and they can't leave. And there's an element to that in the uh, centerpiece of I'm thinking of ending things with the farmhouse. There's this kind of like purgatory quality about the farmhouse. And so, yeah, there's well, a- I would fun. I would say the uh,
0: the book ending like car scenes as well, because partially because they're in the middle of a blizzard and they can't really get off the road. And, uh, you know, also just being stuck in a car for like 20 minutes at a time is, you know, yeah, the, that those was a little la- shocking. long scenes.
1: That yeah. was a little shocking to me because. So this is maybe a little too personal and I'll keep it brief but like as a filmmaker who's always also struggling with financing and this and that and the other thing sometimes you have to scale back concepts mm-hmm. and ideas that you can actually make you know for pragmatic reasons logistical reasons and I'm always trying to make movies that aren't two people talking because right. that's like the least cinematic thing imaginable so it kind of like stuck in my craw a little bit that like an hour out of this two hour and 15 minute movie, there's just like two people in a car. <laughs> mm, sure. uh, and I mean, it was done beautifully and it's, you know, it's, it's excellent. And Yeah. yeah it
0: helps. It helps when you have that cinematographer. What is it? Lucas uh, oh, or yeah. something like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he made it visually beautiful, but it's still two ping pong ball heads talking back and forth, you know? So, and for, for an extended period of time, so, I, you know, I, I think that to me, maybe just because I have some experience in that area, it felt like an idea being scaled back. Now, I haven't read the source novels. So I don't know if the novel takes place predominantly in a car. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's a faithful thing to the book. But it just felt like Kaufman being like, well, I can do this for no money. <laughs> <laughs> right. so, which, which you understand why you would have that thought, you know, with, sure. with the trouble he's had. I have a compliment, <laughs> which is why I don't think it's an objective criticism. I mean, I think the majority right, right. of people watching won't even, it won't even occur to them, but I'm just always trying to get out of cars. I'm trying to get out of diners. I'm trying to get out of houses. You know, these are just not intrinsically cinematic things. Uh, mm-hmm. And especially two people talking is just like the anti cinema to me. Yeah. I'm very, mm-hmm. I'm very suspicious of the spoken word and what Kaufman does well is he has characters talking, but without saying much, you know, they mm-hmm. say a lot, but they don't tell us anything in terms of the narrative or the plot. So that's impressive and that's good. And that's a, good, a nice misdirection, but there is a lot of bobbleheads in the film. And that was just, mm-hmm. that was a little aside, but that was one thing. I okay.
0: Well, you went with, uh, with surreal with your last piece. So I'm going to go with surreal with my next piece. And of course, uh, Charlie Kaufman, compared to David Lynch a lot. Uh, I've seen in reviews, I've seen Inland Empire uh, cited as as something uh, of a comparison, but I'm going to go with Eraserhead uh, because of just the weird, creepy dinner scene with the family. And this is something that struck me directly uh, from the trailer alone and then continued into the movie and just how strange and just off-putting everything within that house is. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's just a lot of weirdness put in there. And like we were saying earlier, like in some ways it's, it's a little more accessible for a Kaufman film, but in other ways it's very out there and very weird the way things happen. And especially once you start realizing uh, the changes happening with the parents and uh, clearly their ages are changing and that is just like kind of another level to that surrealism. And and I love how, as you start to like think about that, it really, uh, you know, it really speaks to what the overall film is trying to say, and where uh, Charlie is kind of trying to uh, lead you to to realizing what the what the overall thing is about and who it's about and everything.
1: Yeah, I and mean, that's thing is my. It's funny because my next puzzle piece was going to be Lynch as well, so that's a perfect thing to kind of discuss for the mo- you know, just for a sec. To sure. me, this was the most Lynchian. I mean, I, one mm-hmm. of the things that I am I'm so impressed with as as a Kaufman fan is that he really feels unique, mm-hmm. uh, and this felt like the least unique, in in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know if, as much as I admire his command of the atmosphere and the tone of the movie, they felt this was kind of like a tone poem of a movie, and I really admire that directorial skill. I did think that this was the the least authentic of his movies. And, Mm. and I think it's only, it's might be just coincidence. I feel like the film is a, well, the book is a thriller. They, they, they describe the book as a thriller and I have not read the book, but as you know, if you look up genre of the book, it's considered a thriller and Mm. maybe Kaufman, mixed with a thriller gives you lynch i mean that's it's possible that sure. it's just like you know mixing colors to get another color that, you know, that's kind of that it has this this lynchian vibe yeah that, that was something that was kind of interesting to me and a little again a little bit of an unfair criticism i'm, I'm not trying to be overly hard on the movie you know i mean I, I really did like it so i, I don't want to like yeah. bash it or anything but it just feels like you know when you look at synecdoche new york there's nothing like it and you look at adaptation. Right. There's nothing like it. You look at you know, right. being John Malkovich. There's nothing like it. With uh, Eternal Sunshine, even which is basically a indie, you know, mid two thousands rom com, it's still very fresh and and unique, uh, even sure. within those confines of the genre. So when I watched this film, I was just like a little surprised that it felt like somebody else could have directed it. Do do
0: you feel, in a way, uh, you you combine Charlie Kaufman with uh, Netflix uh, resources, and you get a twenty-four.
1: you, do you <laughs> yeah. feel that at all? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I feel like yeah, it, it. Kind of feels like you know. There's this is like a very crude comparison, but do you remember Zach and Mary make a porno? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that, this is not a puzzle piece. This is like a like a weird. Not this is not a puzzle piece. But you okay. Yeah, eventually, <laughs> uh, Kevin Smith came out and was like, "I was trying to make a Judd Apatow film." And Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have done that. And I definitely feel like Hoffman was like trying to make a Lynch A twenty four Netflix movie. I don't know if it was conscious. I mean, I I respect him as an artist so much that I don't think he has these kind of primitive thoughts of like, well, I want to make an A twenty four movie or I want I want to make a Lynch movie. I I highly doubt that it's a conscious effort. And I do really respect Hoffman as an artist, but I think maybe he might have stumbled into it by mistake. Mm -hmm. And his exercise as a director, which again, to repeat myself, is. Really excellent and such, I think it was such a strong showing of that. He might have kind of tripped into somebody else's style. Sure. So yeah, I mean, that's the thing and Lynch makes you work more for it. I mean, not to sound like I have all the answers here, but in the, when I first watched this movie and we show the old guy out the window in the first like five minutes, the main character, the female character is sitting outside waiting for Jesse Clemens to pick him up or pick her up, excuse me. And then they show the old guy janitor looking out the window, dressed in a flannel shirt. And then they cut mm-hmm. back to her and then they cut back to the guy again. But now it's Jesse Plemons in the same shirt. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. it's part of the same person. <laughs> <You know? Right. laughs> and there was like, I was surprised by the size of the breadcrumbs, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, the breadcrumbs were a little bit too big for me. I didn't, when, I, when it was over, I was like, oh, okay. So the thing I thought of within the first five minutes was kind of where we were at. Sure, sure. So I was a little disappointed in that, I guess.
0: Yeah, I and I, I guess that makes sense as a fair criticism, but at the same time, maybe he's trying to give, like you said, the, the size of the breadcrumbs, maybe he's trying to give the audience a, a little bit of a, a bone because he, he wants people to like him again. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? To give him some more chance know what, to
1: make so movies. I mean, yeah, I guess that's possible. But, you know, it's like, <laughs> do I do I understand Inland Empire? No. Right. Do okay. I do I do I understand Mulholland Drive? I've seen Mulholland Drive thirty times. I don't understand a goddamn moment of it in, the, in well wait,
0: so i am curious uh, you said your next puzzle piece was going to be Lynch
1: too Wh- which in particular was it one in particular? Or? No, it wasn't actually. It was just gonna be like the work of David Lynch. okay, cool. I could see like a Mulholland drive because the thing is is that okay, so here and this is like, I don't want to get too sidetracked. And I, I think it's your puzzle piece turn, right? Oh no, it's technically sure. mine, right? Because I Yeah, oh, yours I, yours is the works of David Lynch, so Okay. So but in a nutshell, I I feel like this is a movie geek, a movie nerd movie. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting to me, Where I think where where it really succeeds is that this is a movie nerd movie without being obvious about it. Mm-hmm. This movie is actually about movies. Oh yeah, absolutely. But no one, I think the average audience member who isn't a movie nerd like us won't necessarily feel that. You know, there are mm-hmm. some films that feel like, oh, this is a meta in, you know, about film type movie. And this is, I don't think it feels like one of those, even though it is one of those. So yeah. that's an interesting, I think that was a really cool, that's a success that, uh, that Kaufman did. Is he like basically made a movie nerd movie, but totally in camouflage. So I thought that was kind sure. of cool. Yeah, no, I, I love, I love that about it. Yeah, and that's kind of like, so I'll just throw out a quick puzzle piece. I was going to say Fellini's Eight and a Half. Okay, sure. And that's just an overtly surrealist movie, but it's about a filmmaker trying to get a film made. And it's much more, you know, it's like the ultimate movie geek movie, you know, the the Mm -hmm. movie about making movies. So I feel like every movie that's about movies is is somehow in debt to Fellini's Eight and a Half. But this was just superbly subtle in terms of how much it was a reference to other films. Um, or how much it was an ode to cinema in general. So yeah. that was my puzzle piece for that. Okay. Well, you know, I think let's use
0: that as a bridge to a, a brief tangent that is technically puzzle pieces here. We, we did this of course with Ant Kind and we should do this here a little bit, but we should talk about Charlie Kaufman's work and how it, uh, how it compares here, because I do think that there are parallels. Uh, f- first of all, there were a lot of things that, and this was right from the trailer when the trailer came out, but then continued throughout the movie, uh, things that shockingly reminded me of things in Ant Kinds, uh, you know, a, a lot of the uh, obsession with the clown, the the side of the road uh, restaurant, the... the um, uh, failing memories, yeah. the you know the the deteriorating thoughts and and things blending into one another, uh, which of course also brings you back to Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where. Uh, you you know, as he's going deeper and deeper into the memories and it's hard to know where one starts and where one ends and, you know, which are real and which are imaginations mixed in with the dreams and and the memories. And uh, and then, of course, you know, I think more than anything, I feel like even though, like you said, this is a little more accessible and all that, I do think this is in a lot of ways like a companion piece to Synecdoche, New York in that it deals with... You know, a person who's kind of at their end and who, you know, is dealing with a lot of mental issues and with
1: the end of their life. Oh yeah, no, I can see that for sure. I think what what's cool is not only is it a companion, but I think it's almost mm-hmm. an answer because sure. Synecdoche, we're from Caden's perspective, and he's seeing. You know, we're we're not sure what's real and what isn't for what he's seeing, mm-hmm. and now we are actually seeing the film from the perspective of the projection. Right. What I think is honestly the, the stroke of genius that this movie has, like what this what, what is really special and great about this movie is the fact that the film is from the perspective of a figment of the, of the guy's imagination. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Making the narrator a figment of his imagination was a, was a stroke of genius. I don't know if that comes from the book, if that was something that Charlie decided, but either way it's a fantastic choice. And, and a way to kind of reinvent this subgenre, because, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, the surrealist going inside the guy's mind and having a subjective point of view has been done to death, you know. Sure. And so how do you make it really interesting and new? And I think he succeeded there very, very much. And so mm-hmm. I think that's kind of maybe an answer to Synecdoche.
0: Yeah. I I think that's a a great way to put it and a great way to like kind of tie that thought up of this uh, being so closely related to his other
1: work. Um, So what do you got for your next piece? Well, sticking with this meta theme about movies, about movies, I'm going to have to say Ben Stiller's 1996, The Cable Guy. Okay, I love that. (laughs) Because that is a character that only gets information from movies and television. Okay. Okay. And, as we find out, the main character, the Jesse Clemens character, is a man who de- who develops not only his desires but his memories based on film, television, and literature. absolutely. So he is basically chip douglas. this is This <laughs> is a this is a continuation of the Chip Douglas story, in my opinion. I think
0: that is so great, I, and <laughs> I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that at all, and I, I love it. I think that's such a great puzzle piece and <laughs> makes so much sense, and really ropes in a. a really important part of this film which is that whole aspect of him getting so much of his thoughts and memories and and ideas from things that he's read and watched and and listened to and all that and i think that that's such an interesting aspect of the movie and i love how that puzzle piece kind of uh ties that in
1: well i mean yeah exactly i mean it came to me when i was laughing hysterically during the final speech which is word for word from a beautiful mind right that Uh, is the funniest shit. Happening in American cinema today. That was so good. <laughs> now and it dawned on me that this guy is essentially Chip Douglas, the Jim Carrey character from a cable from the cable guy, the guy who you know. Sure. <laughs> but it's also powerful. I mean, besides it being hilarious, it was also kind of powerful because we are so as an audience, I mean, we are so uh influenced by entertainment, I mean we have a a, a, a red haired clown for, as a president right now yeah. because of entertainment because That's true. of the dangers of entertainment and so um and also too our views on love, our views on what a healthy relationship is this all comes from pop music, you know what i mean and it's dangerous sure. we're not yeah, critical yeah. thinkers enough to really be able to um Discern what is real and what's entertainment anymore. So the fact that we are we are so highly influenced by entertainment that our own memories are tainted by it. I mean, and our and our expectations of what this existence is supposed to be, that has completely been hijacked by how inundated we are with uh, not only and that's the thing is I wish it was an equal balance of art and entertainment, but art is clubbed into submission by entertainment. (laughs) So, you know, that's the that's the that's the real issue is that we're not getting sensible, intelligent, complex influences. We're getting trash and it's being fed into our brains and love is supposed to be toxic and it's supposed to be crying. I, I listen to Adele music and I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with this lady? This lady is sick. How dare you get over me, even though I treated you like shit and you moved on and started a beautiful family? How dare you? That's not love. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, and this is what we're, this is the perception of existence that we are, that we're being fed. And unfortunately, we are not critical thinkers enough. I mean, voting for Trump, and maybe for a second time, coming up here in a couple weeks, shows me that we are not capable of discerning trash entertainment from credible art. So right. it, it's a slippery slope. And so that I, I, I mean, even though I was dying laughing, and I was like, Oh, it's the cable guy, part of it struck home of like, right, how much of our own lives are built from fiction. What what do you, while we're on this tangent, what what do
0: you make of uh of the reading of this character Jake as an incel? Oh wow, that's interesting. I, I mean, he's I basically alone. He, he's imagining this relationship with this woman. He he feels like he's right and smarter than everybody, you know, and nobody ever really liked him. Wow,
1: there's a lot. Yeah, of it. I can read. That. I can see it. I can see it. It's uh interesting. Uh, and and from, from Amtine, we know that. You know, Kaufman is very on the pulse of now. Sure. You know, what I mean, and he's frustrated. So I, you know, that if that is the case, that said that if that was a conscious thing, then I admire mm-hmm. uh, Kaufman's restraint and not making yep. such an obvious point. But sure. I mean, the thing is, the lonely white male is a, the dangerous. You know, is the most dangerous thing in our in our society. Oh God, yeah, yeah, and it's mixed with this superiority complex. You know, I mean, it's like they're lonely and horrible. And yet they think they're the greatest and that's, uh, you know, and, and everything is owed to them. So that's a very right. bad combination. Yeah, it sure is.
0: Well, my next puzzle piece is uh, definitely a little bit on the surface level. And I also can't quite take credit for it. Someone on Twitter said it. I wish I remember who, so I could give them credit. But uh, when the trailer first came out, someone asked, is this just get out for white people (laughs) i I felt it was important that we bring that up as a puzzle piece here uh new new young couple going to meet the parents for the first time it also could be a meet the parents uh reference but uh going to meet the parents for the first time and dark weird crazy shit is afoot once they get inside that house and you're not quite sure how things are going to go off the deep end, but you just kind of know that there's something really weird going on and it's going to get dark quick.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think the, the greatest part, seg, you know, um, segment of the film is the house sequence. Sure. Yeah. That's the strongest.
0: Tony, Tony Collette and David Thillis. Yeah. Exactly. incredible. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I, they, they, they brought the house down and, um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, I love the idea that this is Kaufman doing Meet the Parents. That is, like, yeah. this is a like, Kaufman's version of Meet the Parents. I think that's outstanding. Um, it, it works. Yeah, it works. It really does. Yeah. So, no, that's, that's interesting. I could see that kind of a get out for white people. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, in a sense, only in premise. You know, because, right, exactly. Yeah, not so many other things. Sure, but, absolutely. But it's funny. <laughs> this is kind of a weird segue, but I might as well get it out of the way quickly. Mm-hmm because I have to, I feel like it's obligatory now. So I'm going to mention okay. two Kubrick things. Um, oh, anyway. I'm going to have to say The Shining. <laughs> of course, I, <laughs> I figured you'd bring that one up. Yeah. Well, it's very Shining-like. Thing it is, is. I don't think I'm crazy. I think everything's <laughs> The Shining and I think I'm right about that. I don't think that I'm just seeing what I want to see. Okay? <laughs> no,
0: I saw, I saw it too.
1: Yeah, I saw it too. You,
0: right
1: you're me. Um, yeah. Prove me wrong, I'm, a, I'm that meme. I'm that meme, I'm that guy at a table and I'm like, everything is the Shining. Prove me wrong. That's what I am right now.
0: I, I need to make that your uh, your like little avatar when um, when you start writing reviews on the website. Um, yeah, <laughs> I need, need to have you at the table. Yeah, was, everything is the Shining. Prove me wrong. A blue
1: sweater. Everything's the Shining. Prove me wrong. <laughs> I, think, I think I'm because I don't think anyone can prove me wrong. And then also too, so I mean, it's I mean, let me expand on that briefly it has the atmosphere of the shining. I mean, this house is mm-hmm. essentially the overlook. Right. You know I mean, it's like the traveling there through the driving on the way there, the conversation, they get to the house. The house is super creepy. They use mm-hmm. wide angle lenses to, to mess with our sense of perception, not to get overly filmmaker, you, but there's a lot of visual techniques there to kind of, uh, messing with space, which is the, that's one of my favorite things about the Overlook Hotel, is that it's an it's an impossible building. Essentially, from the exterior shots of the hotel itself, the big golden ballroom could never actually fit inside of it. Right. So one of the ways that Stanley was kind of messing with us is he he didn't want to do a straightforward impressionistic ghost hotel because he think that would be cheesy, right? It would separate us from the terror. So what he does is he creates a realistic enough hotel that we can buy it plausibly, right? We're not always conscious of how it's ghost-like, but then he messes with our perception of space. Mm -hmm. And I think think that was something that Kaufman did with this house, the messing with perception of space through the lens choices and through the compositional stuff and through the lighting. So I think that was something that was really shining-like. And then also, too, I got to say, 2001 A Space Odyssey with Mm -hmm. the rapid aging. Okay, yeah, yeah. The final sequence when Dave Bowman goes from young to old to very old to very, very old. And I feel like that was happening in the house uh, in a very similar fashion in I'm Thinking of Ending Things.
0: Mm-hmm. So there you yeah, go. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that I, I could completely see both of those with that rapid aging for 2001 and the house itself and the atmosphere for The Shining. And uh, yeah, I think you're onto something, Chris.
1: I think so. <laughs> Prove me wrong. I'm that meme. That's what I feel. Well, you know, I got one letters about me. I hope people write like never invite this person on again. What we know, know what he's character. gonna say.
0: But but maybe maybe it's like uh you're you're a recurring character, like like uh you know
1: <laughs> we we, we got your mind. catchphrase. Maybe I'm inside <laughs> your mind and you're just being influenced by a Kubrick movie you watched one time, and that's, that's true. I'm the manifestation of that. That's could, possible. Could very,
0: could very well was... be true. <laughs>
1: So I got one last piece here
0: and it's a much lighter film but I wanted to bring it up. It is the 2012 film Ruby Sparks with Ooh. Paul Dano as a writer who conjures up this girl in his story who comes to life. She's played by Zoe Kazan and she is not just his perfect dream girl he that he, you know, hopes will just be with him, but she kind of has her own agency and her own thoughts and her own wishes and desires and here in i'm um, thinking of any things uh of course you know spoiler alert we've already said but uh you know Jake is basically imagined this girl into his life into his memories and even though he's the one doing the imagining she doesn't really want to stick around with him and she shoots down a lot of his ideas about uh art and and you know all that kind of stuff and she is absolutely her own person and you know i think that speaks a lot to uh, to the story itself as well as to the performance. You know, I know Charlie in an interview said that one thing he wanted to change from the book, from my understanding, is to really give her even more of her own character. And he said that to, to hire an actress like Jesse Buckley and make her just an imaginary character and that's it would just not be uh it it wouldn't be giving credit to the actress and he wanted to really flesh her out into a full
1: being with her own thoughts and and agency yeah I mean that's the thing if it wasn't i mean that's the thing is if it based on the simplicity almost of this movie if it didn't have that element it would be rather boring it would be rather normal you know i mean it's like Mm -hmm. i said this genre has been done and done very well. You know, this is not sure. like a genre that really needs Kaufman to swoop in and save it. You know, we have a mm-hmm. lot of excellent, you know, quasi-surreal stories that are happening in modern cinema. So the fact that he was able to give that character agency, I think, was the most was the master stroke. You know, really, right. I really think that's like the that's the hook. And I'm happy yeah. that it came from such a place of like, well, I want to respect this actress. I want to give her something with some meat on the bone. That's fantastic. Right. But I think he would have run into that anyway. Writing this story, yeah. I think he probably would have been bored. With, with oh, it. That, that's true. That's true. Because yeah, I mean he he
0: wants to do something unique. He wants to do something that interests him.
1: Yeah, and, th- and this was the most interesting part. Yeah, you know, one of my favorite things about the character, the the, uh, the uh, girlfriend character, is that even it's like it's, it's it kind of speaks to how sad the film is, and that is like one of the puzzle pieces I have is like the work of Lars von Traer because it's sure. so unabashedly sad. Like Lars von Traer doesn't give a shit if you are enjoying yourself. And right. he's a, he, he's a hit and miss for me. Like sometimes I think he's a genius and sometimes I think he's a pretentious windbag and I don't mm. ever really know how I feel about the guy, but some people, you can't deny how great some of his films are. So it, it right. I, you know, but it, what I love about him is that he's like just the most depressed sad sack imaginable and he's like you right. feel this with me. And I don't yeah. care if you like it, and that's I, th- I think Kaufman's <laughs> in that territory. Yeah,
0: this is that's another comparison to Synecdoche, New York, there because that uh, is yeah. just brutal. Oh stupid. my god,
1: brutal is the word. Absolutely. Yeah. I, that thing is <laughs> like we. That's the thing. It's weird. I have this really weird relationship where like I think sometimes things are morbidly sad, like Adele music. Mm-hmm. But then I also think that sadness is something we should not pretend doesn't exist. So I think it has a lot oh, to totally. do with like how. The subjects are handled i think in pop music i think it's morbid that we listen to like really toxic sad things and then i think in the the arena of art i think it's good to explore sadness as an emotion and not always have the character come out of it at the end and you know be chipper and that's not the experience for many people in this life so i think i mean everything is everything is uh in bounds in the in the arena of art uh, but sure. it, it, you know, it's more about how it's handled. But yeah, Lars von Trier is like unabashedly sad, and a, as is Kaufman. Mm-hmm. But one of my favorite things about the character, as I was saying a little a little bit ago, is that even in this guy's brain, he can't come up with a character that fucking loves him. Right. Exactly. Like that is a fantastic element here, to where like his own brain is like, I'm thinking about breaking up with this guy. Yeah. I'm not sure if I want to even be here. And that is, a, that's another profound and yet darkly funny uh, side. But I think that is, because that's what's great about Kaufman is he, he dives so deep into sadness that it's almost funny. Right. It totally. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of his milieu. If you permit me to use a French word.
0: <laughs> it's, it's not only allowed, it's encouraged. Okay, good.
1: Jejeune, David. <laughs> that being jejeune. No, so, so yeah, so that's one of the things is that it's like I just loved how like a kick in the balls sad it was. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that's, that's my shit, day. honestly. Yeah, I'm all about it. <laughs> yeah, you know, unless yeah. it's bu- unless it's just really bullshit stuff. Like if it, if you're gonna right. really commit, commit. Exactly. That's one of the exactly. things about Lars Von Trier that I can't help but respect. Is he just admires you in this the most depressing shit? And like even what is it, melancholia, really lives up to its name. Because the sure. entire world dies. And I was like, that's the way to do it. Hell yeah. All right. So I know. Okay. So you're out of puzzle pieces, right?
0: I'm out. What, what else do you got? Let's, uh, let's get through whatever you got.
1: All right. So yeah, that's, this is my normal thing where I have like 40 more than you. So I'm going, <laughs> yeah. to, I'm going, I'm going to just rapid fire them like I usually do. And I'll try sure. to make it cohesive. <clears throat> Two I'm going to combine uh, is the, this is very specific. It's the artwork of MC Escher. Uh, especially okay. because of that staircase sequence where she's yeah, repeatedly sure. walking down the stairs. And that's gonna tie in to a Hitchcock reference. I think this is also maybe Kaufman's most Hitchcockian film, uh, which is kind of a you know, a weird I don't think it's maybe conscious, but I mean I think we're all paying debt to, to Hitch all the time and especially with films sure. of the atmosphere. And he was obsessed with staircases. Some of the great sequences of Hitchcock always take place in staircases. They're interesting visually. They're interesting metaphorically. And then right in the center of this movie, we have this M.C. Escher-esque stair sequence. So that's something I'd like to mention. Um, I'd like to mention a movie called Certified Copy. Uh, I I think it's a fantastic film. uh, And it's just a a movie that really subtly becomes uh, – very surreal and it's about the ins and outs of a relationship. And so I think there's some, some connective tissue there. It's a phenomenal film. If you have the opportunity to see that, that's um, one that will make you your head scratch. Um, yeah. I want to talk about a, a independent film from 1998. The only good thing Vincent Gallo has ever made, which is Buffalo 66. Sure. And I think it's that the family toxicity, that dinner scene. Right. Right at the core of Buffalo Sixty Six is the most intense family dysfunction uh, you can possibly imagine. It's masterfully done, and mm-hmm. I think that uh, this film—I'm uh, thinking of ending things—probably has uh, some connective tissue there. I think first time uh, Vincent Gallo's come up on the podcast, so really, I'm yeah. kind of happy that I have that title. <laughs> you know, it's fun. I and mean, real brief, super briefly. I've—I've I've warmed to the Brown Bunny. I used to yeah. hate. The Brown Bunny. I used to tell mm. everyone how much I hated it. And I right. was wrong. I was wrong. It, it's it's better. I mean, it's not great. It's no It's no Buffalo 66. Buffalo 66 right. is great. It's sincerely oh, yeah. great. But uh, Brown Bunny, I've warmed to over time. So anyway. Um, so yeah, I'm happy that, that Mr. Gallo, the first time mentioned by me. Uh, I would love to mention the John Cassavetes film that is specifically – Talked about in the movie, which is a woman mm-hmm. under the influence. Right. Now, this was a very unique sequence because the main character—I'm I, I, sure her name is—is is eluding me right now. Do you remember the the girlfriend character? What was her name in the film? Well, she
0: technically she's nameless. She's just young woman, but uh, at the time, I think it was Julie because right, that's right. Julie
1: changes. is the one they give. Okay, it changes too because he calls her Amy yeah. as well. I think right, yeah, yeah, and a couple like, others, Julie too. or Amy. Um, she turns into this very famous uh, film critic that that right. this is, you know, as a female film critic that wrote extensively about American cinema throughout the 70s uh, and 80s. And uh, she basically trashed uh, A Woman Under the Influence, which is one of my favorite films, a great film so, by John uh, that is. And in the film, The Nameless Girl or Julie actually transforms into doing a spot on impression of this very famous uh, film critic and reads verbatim her review of a woman under the influence. And that's yeah. another little tidbit about how this guy's only real memories and thoughts are, are influenced by media. Yeah. So and, really- and
0: it also kind of uh, speaks to this, this creation, like, you know, talking back to him and, you know, cause he loves the movie that she's trashing. Right.
1: Right. Exactly. But yeah. that's one too is like, I think that that's an interesting idea. Like the, Kind of like, I know it's going to sound really funny. I didn't plan this, but kind of my experience with Brown Bunny, to where <laughs> you think you have these concrete ideas, but then you read something or you see something or something. Here's this where this is where it's really unique. This is what I struggle with. Do I really think something is great, or am I just accepting that the general consensus is that it's great? Well, yeah,
0: that is a very interesting point. Like you know, especially when you're seeing something that you, you maybe don't know what the general consensus is. And yeah. then you, you watch it, you're sitting there for a minute and you're thinking what you're thinking. And then you're like, oh shit. Okay. Do I go to letterbox now and see that everybody else hates this or loves it? It's the opposite of what I just thought. Like, right. it's like what? What? where does my thought come from? And am I right? Even though right isn't even a, you know, a real thing. Right. It's your
1: experience, right? It's, yeah. it, how do you feel about it? Yeah. And the thing is, is that do I experience films academically or do I experience them as they're intended emotionally? Mm-hmm. I feel like I always have this very schizophrenic uh, relationship with films, being a filmmaker, being a film appreciator, being a film critic. Yeah, you know, I try to look at the, I try to experience films on the emotional level and register them in that way, how they're intended. Yeah. But I have, mm. such, I have this very uh, academic approach at times, and it makes it challenging. And it also makes it harder to actually deter, determine what I really feel. Sure. So it, it takes a lot of contemplation, and I try to go with my gut instinct. But also, too, thinking about a movie or having somebody else who's educated shine light on a movie, and maybe they they say something that you didn't particularly catch, that can transform your opinion. So it's always this feeling of like, well, am I being genuine by changing my opinion? And the answer, I think, ultimately is yes. If you get new Absolutely. pieces, new pieces of information that change your view, then I think you you should change. You should not, you know, be steadfast on some juvenile view of the movie. My 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 views have changed mid episode uh, yeah. while recording this podcast. So yeah, I and mean, there's this thing, there's hypocrisy. I mean, you're probably thinking about all the times I made excellent cases and I changed <laughs> your mind. This is probably what you're referring to. <laughs> right. Totally. That's exactly. <laughs> I'm messing with you. All <laughs> right. So my, my last really fast ones. I'm surprised you didn't say this one yourself. I thought for sure you were going to get it, but Mother. I did think about
0: it. Yeah. I bring it up too much, but yeah, <laughs> I did absolutely.
1: Oh, think I, that doesn't it. bother me. That's fine. Yeah. I don't, I'll say <laughs> the same movie every time I'm on here. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I think, uh, again, Darren Aronofsky has fantastically big balls. And I really mm. love his balls. And I love how large they are and swollen they are. And I really appreciate him because he will just make movies. like he, I, Noah is one of my favorite movies of the decade. Yeah, And it, I think it's outstanding. And it, it's ridiculous. And I mm. love every ridiculous second of it. It's basically the shining on a boat, David. <laughs> I think you've said that exact phrase on this podcast. I think I have. I'm pretty sure I have. In fact, I'm certain I have. Anyway... And then I'd like to mention the end of the tour.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, that is. Because even with Antkind, I, uh, I mentioned a David Foster Wallace influence. And now I'm mm. actually certain of it. I wasn't really sure if it was in kind of Kaufman's ethos. But I, I really think that it is in his ethos. And mm. the on the road element, the two people talking element, the conversation about David Foster Wallace right in the center of I'm thinking of ending things. And I think that the work of David Foster Wallace in general, but also specifically the cinematic rendering of that work in uh, the end of the tour, is uh, a big influence on this. I'd say, I'd Mm -hmm. say even maybe consciously. Um, My second to last reference is going to be a great Mike Nichols movie called uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And Mm -hmm. I think that again is just like the pressure cooker, small chamber piece type feeling of people talking in a room, and and the 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 intensity of those conversation the conversations and the atmosphere that feels almost tangible and palpable and then my final one is citizen kane okay and i think it's because the pig filled with maggots is essentially jake's rosebud sure <laughs> yeah uh, I, then, that's actually what one of my
0: one of my favorite like things in the movie is that whole sequence and not because it's so strange but because it makes so much sense when you think about it this you know this animated version of that horrific pig story it's animated in the style of his favorite uh ice cream commercial and so it's like his favorite thing and his most fearful thing kind of combining to be his Personal guide into the afterlife.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because I I do feel that he dies at the end. Mm-hmm. He has some type of heart attack or something in the car. Yeah, and then we kind of go into that fantasy land. But that's the final moments of his brain, fl- you know, flickering. And you're right. I think the combination of those, the most horrific thing mixed with his favorite thing, uh, it, the pig, is that kind of link to his past. You know, yep. link, link to to who he really is. And and to, and to be clear, it, it was
0: insane as it was unfolding it was only after the credits rolled that i'm like putting that together in my head
1: yeah that was something that i mean i think that it's so kind of fantastically strange that you don't really put all the pieces together right away you just kind of feel that yeah and i love how it kind of goes there and and teeters on the absurd you know Mm -hmm. and uh, i love like the old the old people makeup that's like like purposefully bad Yeah, Um, yeah Just like in a beautiful mind, how like it's like that looks like Jennifer Connelly. That is not an old yeah. lady. Uh, so yeah, that, there's there there was a lot to unpack there, but I feel like that yeah. in a weird way, a cartoon pig filled with maggots was his rosebud. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well,
0: we got a lot of puzzle pieces here, so I'm going to do the finished puzzle and we'll get into some closing thoughts. Uh, finished puzzle includes Through a Glass Darkly, No Country for Old Men, The Exterminating Angel, Eraserhead, other David Lynch films as well, Eight and a Half, Charlie Kaufman's own work, including Eternal Sunshine, Synecdoche New York, and Ant Kind, The Cable Guy, Get Out and Meet the Parents, The Shining, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Ruby Sparks, Lars von Trier Films, M.C. Escher, Hitchcock Films, Certified Copy, Buffalo 66, A Woman Under the Influence, Mother, The End of the Tour, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and Citizen Kane. So, Chris, uh, do you have any other thoughts about this movie? Any, any major major things that we didn't quite get to as we were going through these pieces?
1: Well, I would just like to... Take a moment to say that the best puzzle piece is the is the cable guy. I think. Yes. <laughs> I I I might agree with you on this one. Chris. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mentioned 2001: A Space Odyssey and Citizen Kane, and I still think that the cable guy is the most apt of uh-huh. all. Pieces. I'm just messing with you. So certainly, uh, you know, certainly for the character, it's pretty good. It's like yeah. it says <laughs> I think he probably saw it like on cable one night, and he was like, "I'm gonna." I'm gonna make the sequel to the cable guy. I think that was, in, that was in Charlie's mind. Now, so, um, no, I think we touched on it. Like I said, I was I was surprised by the film. I think it succeeds in many areas. I think it is I think overall from a from a screenplay standpoint, it's somewhat of of Kaufman light. Mm-hmm. But I'm very happy that I got to see him kind of stretch his directorial muscles. And mm-hmm. I think that he's much more in command of atmosphere and what goes unsaid. Uh, I was a little disappointed in the simplicity of the overall like point and story, but mm-hmm. I do think that it was very, in, it was ingenious to give the, to shift the perspective. So right. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of torn on it as an overall piece. Like I don't think it's the best or my favorite, but I think it's a step forward for him in a lot of avenues and a lot of ways. Uh, I think he's one of the most talented people working today and we need to give him more opportunities uh, and mm-hmm. I will always support him, as I know you will. Um, sure. And so, yeah, he, he challenged me. And I don't think you can ask for much more from an artist. You know, he's not being Billy Idol playing the same song for the next 30 years. He's not making adaptation over and over again or making being mm-hmm. John Malkovich over and over again. So I really admire the risks that he's taking. Sometimes it works a little bit less, you know, more so than others. Uh, but there's a lot to admire here about this movie.
0: Absolutely. Uh, only last thing I wanted to mention, uh, you know, you mentioned how big a laugh you got from uh, the beautiful mind uh, speech. I just wanted to kind of give a quick shout out to my biggest laugh of the movie, uh, which is not his funniest film by any stretch. But uh, my biggest laugh was when uh, she's upstairs with uh, Jake's dad and he makes some kind of dirty joke. I forget what it is. And from across the house, you hear Tony Collette start cackling. <laughs> I laughed so hard at that moment. Uh, He's like,
1: you know, fucking. talking.
0: So just, I, think, just, right. I think that's what it was yeah. she's like ha, ha, ha. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah they're spectacular in that they're so good that uh, it, it, oh it's my god casted film
0: <laughs> well i think that about does it we could easily talk about this movie for another hour but uh chris what is another movie you saw recently you'd like to recommend to our listeners
1: So I, so I'm a kind of a list person, as you know, I I do, I recently finished the 100 greatest films of the 21st century as voted by the BBC. And I was Mm -hmm. writing reviews for each one. And we're going to be doing something similar on the piecing it together website where I'm going to be doing kind of reviews and essays, Uh, some at some point between now and the end of time, uh, we will definitely get that going. Um, But I recently started the uh, 2012 sight and sound list of the greatest films ever made. And I recently, so I've been watching some oldies that are on that list. But the film that I would recommend the highest right now that I think is probably one of the most underseen is a movie called Tukibuki. And it's a yeah. Senegalese film from Africa. Uh, and uh, it was made in the 1970s, 1973. And it, it that Senegal uh, got its independence from France in the 60s. And only then could they start making films about what life was really like in their country and in in you know in their in their home, and it's it's shocking and it's revolutionary and it's bold. It's kind of like basically uh, it's like easy rider for Africa. So I would take a look at it. It has a lot of extreme animal death. I would give um, a little note about that because it is very challenging to watch but this is a part of their time and place and culture that we are not mm-hmm. exposed to typically and the film uh, unflinchingly looks at that so take a look at that film it's brilliant and it will it will change you all right well why don't you tell people where they could find you and your work uh, so I am always working. You can find me on the social media platforms, of course, just my name, which David will put up on the post. You can go to chriscranock.com to see a lot of my other work. I'm finally fin- finishing up a movie within the next month or so, uh, a film called Bizarro e Fantastico that I shot in Rome, Italy, and Paris, France last October before all of COVID shut down the world. Uh, And we have a lot more things coming out as well. So yeah, check out the new film when it's released and you can see all of my work online. I'm, I'm always around. Well, Chris, I'm glad to
0: finally be getting you back on the show, these two episodes, and I look forward to whatever we cover next time.
1: Same, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.
0: All right, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation about I'm thinking of ending things. Obviously, we could have went on for another hour or two. There's just so much to talk about with this movie, but I think we hopefully did it justice And hopefully it's not another, however many years it's been since the last Charlie Kaufman film, and we'll be able to do another one of his movies in the near future. As a matter of fact, we are doing another one of his movies in the very near future, although it's one of our Missing Pieces episode. We are taking a look at Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind that's coming up next week, so... Hopefully a new one, though, too. I, I'm always looking forward to do Charlie Kaufman projects. So thank you, as always, for listening. If you enjoy piecing it together, you can rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Those reviews help make sure to get the show heard, although from what I hear, it doesn't really help anything, and that's just like this big myth within the circles of podcasting. But hey, do it anyway. We we appreciate the feedback, and we, we like knowing that you're out there listening, so appreciate all kinds of reviews and you know if you just want to get in touch you could always just tweet at us or whatever at piecing get in touch if you ever want to join me for an episode as well uh get in touch with me too because there's plenty of upcoming movies we need to do episodes on and i always like getting new co-hosts on the show so that does it for today i'm going to leave you with a piece of music as always And at first I was going to play a piece of music from my new self-titled album that's coming out on October 4th that I finally finished this week. Yes, I've been updating you guys over the past few months about how this album was in development and is coming soon. And now it is finally finished and will come out on October 4th. And there will be a special episode the week before it comes out of Piecing It Together, taking a look at the album. So keep keep your your ears peeled. Is that a thing you can do? For that. But uh, instead of playing that, though, I think we'll celebrate the whole Charlie Kaufmanness of this episode one last time by playing something that I made a few years back when the fundraiser for Anomalisa was happening. And the people who were running the fundraiser asked if anybody had any kind of Charlie Kaufman related art that could be used as some of the, uh, the perks for donating to the fundraiser. And so I decided to make a little Charlie Kaufman rap song <laughs> and it's called Anomalisa and I sent it to them and they seem to love it. Uh, I, I think that they said there was some kind of like potential rights issues with all the name checks that I did with uh, all the various Charlie Kaufman projects so they couldn't send it out as part of the thing although I think they did share it at the time uh, from my SoundCloud and hopefully a lot of Charlie Kaufman fans enjoyed it but now you're going to get to hear it so this is called Anomalisa and hope you enjoy it and we'll be back with more Piecing It Together next week First things first thank you for backing we got it all funded now it's time to get cracking if things get weird it's all part of the plan because this came from the mind of charlie kaufman being john malkovich eternal sunshine of the mind adaptation is my favorite movie of all time Key, new york was off the chain now it's time to see what else is inside this man's brain Anomaly, so we're all patiently waiting to see it come to life and stop motion animation brought to the world